listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. So one of the great moments for me as a young uh, monk was uh, occurred when I was listening to my teacher give a, a discussion on uh, case 76 in the Book of Serenity. There are two books in Zen that are filled with what we call koans or these kind of mysterious, nonsensical sounding, you know, uh, uh, bits, of, bits of language that are have been really kind of whittled down to point us in a specific direction. Um, classic example would be, what is the sound of one hand clapping? And that's designed not to help you get clever, but to help your mind stop. Now, of course, uh, as a performer, I was very familiar with what is the sound of no hands clapping, but that's another story. The... Uh, the uh, idea here is to jar the mind into its natural state of stillness. You may have heard another one. Does a dog have Buddha nature? And the response by the priest is no. Or it's actually mu, which means no. Well, of course a dog has Buddha nature, so why would he say no? And so the idea is to create this... Well, one of my favorite, um, and it became my favorite because uh, the, this koan out of uh, K76 from the Book of Serenity. By the way, there's also another one, the Blue Cliff Record, if you ever want to get some more. That one, the Blue Cliff Record in the Book of Serenity. K76 in the Book of Serenity, my teacher went on this thing for weeks. And I'll read you the, uh, the case right now. Please do not try to necessarily make anything of it. I'll kind of walk us through it bit by bit. Uh, I won't spend a tremendous amount of time on it, but I'll kind of point out where it's going. Shaoshan said to the assembly, If you attain at the first phrase, you will be teacher of Buddhas and patriarchs. If you attain at the second phrase, you will be teacher of humans and gods. If you attain at the third phrase... You cannot even save yourself. A monk asked, At which phrase did you attain? Shaoshan said, The moon sets midnight going through the marketplace. <coughs> now, for us to really try to make sense of this is what destroys the essence of where this is trying to point us. Attainment an awakening is something that can work with these uh, uh, at the first phrase for instance Buddhas and patriarchs what do we do we teach this mirroring awareness we teach this witnessing awareness that I keep talking about if we can get a sense of that and, and we can you know we attain kind of this idea of oh okay that's the witness then what can we do we can we can attain there rather we can teach the highest order okay all right if it takes, if it takes a, a little more, if we're actually starting to settle into this witnessing awareness, okay, 
the, at the second phrase, or we could almost translate that into the second stage, we can teach humans and gods. Meaning, meaning that once we start to settle into this witnessing awareness, we can become an embodiment that actually teaches all things. Okay, It's not just the higher or taller or, uh, uh, shall we say, more, more deeply reasoned and well-schooled. We can teach everybody. But then when we really deepen our practice, we can't even save ourselves. Reason why? There's no self left. Okay? So while it sounds quite puzzling and so forth, the monk then asks Shoshan, he says, well, wait, 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 what phrase did you attain? Did you, are you at that first level, the second level, or the third level? And what's his response? Pretty much he's saying, there's peace in the middle of all of it. The moon sets. Midnight. Going through the marketplace. Another way of saying that, it's all good. It's all good. So Shaoshan here, actually, I think is offering up something pretty, pretty fascinating, pretty cool, pretty beautiful. He's saying, let go. Let go. It's not about the striving of trying to recognize witness. Okay? It's not a, it's the one thing, it's the one thing that's never not there. It's always there. If you are aware of me right now, sitting in front of you, yammering on, the witness is employed fully. If it helps, think of it as awareness itself. Is your awareness here? Or is it somewhere else? If it's here, you are present. If it's somewhere else, you are in time. You are either in memory or planning mode. So, the moon sets, midnight, going through the marketplace. That's our fundamental reality. Another way of saying that would be, uh, a wordless, effortless peace. And there's really no phrase there to attain. We have guideposts, we have markers, we have signs that help point us in the right direction. But there really isn't anything that we can hold on to that allows for us to settle into an awakening. Rather, as we begin to open, as we begin to allow the moon to set, as we allow in our hearts and minds for midnight to just be there as we go through the marketplace of life, Instead of attaining something, instead of us reaching out for awakening, awakening reaches itself through us. We become that vessel. Christianity has a whole bunch of, and Judaism has just these amazing ways of describing this kind of, you know, being this vessel for God or, you know, however you want to term it. If we relax enough, it finds its way through. Problem is, our typical response is to oppose and resist anything we think is worthy of opposition and resistance. And so rather than meeting our life, we tend to, openly, we tend to 
experience life as some kind of boxing match. Sometimes we feel like salmon swimming upstream. Going with the flow, so to speak, to abuse this metaphor, doesn't mean, however, that we necessarily just throw up our hands and say, oh, it's, it's, everything's okay, it's all illusion, therefore I don't have to do anything. On the contrary, I would say what this radical teaching shows us is that as we get to that first, second, or third stage, as we start really, really allowing this presence to kind of settle in and through us, we start recognizing that we have this amazing responsibility. We have an amazing responsibility, not only to ourselves, but to all beings, that this is a deeply shared experience. We start hitting those moments when we recognize, unless we're all free, none of us is free. It's no longer an abstract, it's something we actually can, yeah, something we can kind of, yes, this is important. And it's not so much that we become intolerant of people that are intolerant. That's just war with another name. That's just war cloaking itself, or a fight, or violence cloaking itself as peace. We become actually deeply accepting and loving of each and every position. And yet we can lean into one that we know consciously will begin to light beautiful fires within the world. So there is kind of this cool calling that kind of comes from this as we deepen, as we start looking at these, these uh, levels of development, as we start letting the, this witnessing presence begin to kind of just settle in more and more deeply. We recognize that this boundary between self and other is not really there as much as we've always felt, as much as all this inertia has shown us. We start to see that there is more to us than just what's in here and in here, in heart and in mind. We start seeing that heart and mind fused together show up as appropriate speech, as appropriate action, as ways of letting generosity into the world in kind of magical and mysterious ways that are often so simple. Every one of us has that capacity. Every one of us has that capacity. And you don't have to wait for the moon to set, for midnight to go through the marketplace. That's already there. You'll see that soon enough. So something that's been coming up as we speak about the, how the moon sets midnight going through the marketplace, this idea of this peace underneath everything, even as kind of chaos seems to reign supreme. There have been, uh, for some reason, in the last week or so, several uh, 
uh, friends and acquaintances that have really called into question um, the idea of, of love and how it relates to me personally, my personal situation. And it's been really interesting because, um, as, as many of you know, my wife and I are going through a separation that, uh, you know, is, is I mean, it's, it's the most difficult thing I've ever gone through in my life, bar, bar none. I mean, easily the most, it's, I mean, it's tragic, and it's also, you know, kind of a relief. When she and I talk about it, we both kind of recognize it. I say, oh, yeah, you have that feeling? Yeah, me too, you know type of thing it's a logistical nightmare you know it's all these all these really kind of interesting tied up uh, uh, tangles and in in Buddhism we refer to tangle with this fancy Sanskrit name karma (laughs) so there's all this karmic stuff that kind of comes up and I wanted to address it just absolutely forthrightly and get it out there so that 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 I'm, I'm hoping that people can look at the experience that I'm having right now and and, and the uh, the navigation that I'm trying to uh, meet as best I can as an invitation to their own work. This is how the teaching works. Um, by that, I would say, if any of you are struggling with this uh, you know how, how does somebody who sits up there talks about you know acceptance and you know meeting their life and so forth why the hell would you leave why would you leave a marriage isn't a marriage a vow also that you want to be really you know and and all of these things I would humbly submit that this now becomes the single greatest opportunity for you to explore your stories around what it means to be awake what love means, and what your idea of commitment is. The stories surrounding those three issues become profound areas of growth for you personally. And just like in the therapeutic relationship that uh, you know, therapists and their, and their uh, patients have, so too do teachers and students, spiritual teachers, and students, or if you don't like thinking of me as a spiritual teacher, spiritual coach, okay? What's the, what's the kind of relationship that the coach and the player has? Well, the, 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 the student is always, when, when the student is really taking their responsibility, taking on their responsibility of awakening, they are testing themselves and their understanding against the teacher. And if you are not doing that, you are not holding up your end of this bargain that we tacitly kind of agree on. It's one of the things that we miss in contemporary spiritual circles, I think, a great deal. We, we talk about, you know, how, well, the teacher's got to be this, this, and I totally agree with all of that. We spend a lot of time on, you know, what, you know, the shoulds and shouldn'ts and, you know, what the teacher, what you should look for in a teacher and so forth. But when we start turning that light back on ourselves, what is it? that the student is ultimately responsible for. Because there's no teacher who's going to teach you awakening. There's no one that is going to enlighten you. No one. And if someone says they can, please leave the room. Just for safety. 
Your job is to test the teacher. That's your job. And the same applies in an informal situation where you are testing the teacher that shows up in your life, whether they are little kids that you're related to or not, whether it's someone on the street, whether it's someone that you cannot stand. The teacher is always there. What's your responsibility? Test the teacher by testing yourself. Hear me? So this is really cool. I I would encourage, and I've had several people in the Sangha and so forth who've kind of approached me and done it so so beautifully, you know, where they've said, hey, look, I'm troubled by the fact that you're actually, you know, your marriage is now in a situation that I can't hold up as being something ideal. And quite honestly, my response to that as tenderly and compassionately as I possibly can offer it is nice. Good job. All right. So now you see that every projection that you might throw on me or any other teacher just perpetuates your own delusion if you're not careful. There's this great, uh, great story of how, um, why can't I think of his name? I'm having a senior moment, even though I'm only middle-aged. How come I can't remember his name? It'll come to me probably in five minutes during the talk, so if I bark it out, you'll know where it comes from. Anyway, he was... uh, He was dying of cancer. It wasn't Suzuki Roshi, but it was actually someone who worked very closely with Suzuki Roshi in Minnesota, Minneapolis. Oh, come, Mike. Come on, come on. Huh? Thank you. Barbara Papin. She gets the A. (laughs) Katagiri. Yeah, nice job. So Katagiri, you you may have heard this story. When he's dying of cancer, all right? And he, uh, the way I heard the, the story, and I, I'm not sure like what's mythology and, and what's not, but the way, the way I heard the story is that his, uh, there were a couple of his students who were saying, you know what, the, you know, the guy's so awake, he, he'll be able to work through this cancer. He'll be able to beat it because it's, it's mind over matter. You know? And he's, if, there, if anyone can do it, he will just go ahead and beat it. So what did he do? He called all of his senior students in, this is really late into the, his, uh, his uh, uh, life process, death process here. He brings them, they, they surround his bed, and he said, I want to show all of you what it's like for a Zen master to die. And they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And so he sits up in his bed and then screams and screams and screams and quiets down. He says, There. Could you please leave now? It's not always pretty. It ain't. It's what you carry into the non-pretty that really becomes the Dharma or the teaching working through the Buddha or your highest self. Does this make sense? So... I mean, I know I've been doing this for you know a decade, and I have learned that you got to let people project all sorts of delusion all over you, and then just you know kind of thank you. Mm-hmm. You know you can't believe your own press releases. 
You just can't because they're not true. I'm saying from, from where I sit. And you also have to make sure that, in other words, what I want to make sure is that this Sangha hears very, very clearly that even this is an opportunity for everyone to deepen their own work. Test me. Test yourself. Question. That's kind of how this work takes off. I'm not going to give you anything. Those of you that have been sitting here long enough know that I repeat myself constantly (laughs) and that I have nothing for you. There's nothing special about me or this work. Okay? It's been blabbed about for 3,500 years. I might be saying it a little differently. Different flavor. Same ice cream. All right? So look at it that way and take ownership of your situation as it relates to this particular grouping, to this particular practice that you have. It's really not about me. I'm just a guy. I'm just a, I'm just a you know, what did Clark Gable say? I'm just a lucky slob. You know? What did Spencer Tracy say? Just remember your lines and don't bump into the furniture. That's great acting. You know? And yet there was something so magical about the way these two guys could carry themselves on screen. You can still watch Tracy. I'm a big sucker for Tracy and Hepburn. That chemistry, there was something so magical about it, so wordless, so powerful, you know? And Gable had a way of creating a presence on celluloid that, you know, few have matched. Why? He was present. He was fully there. Right? He was normal. And he was great at showing his normalcy. Right? So with that in mind, I, I did want to kind of, you know, create a certain... Um, I once... Uh, I once had a a tweet that I was fairly proud of, which is not normally the case. Normally I just kind of tweet things as a stream of consciousness or or whatever on on Twitter. For those of you that that follow Twitter, it's kind of fun. You have to squeeze, you have to edit everything down to 140 characters. And so I was... uh, I was kind of joking about, for instance, recently the uh, the Rush Limbaugh situation, where he called that that uh, student um, a uh, uh, a slut and a prostitute because of you know uh, she used birth control, which makes most of us sluts and prostitutes in this room. <laughs> I'm imagining. Um, so I said that uh, that. We at Infinite Smile have decided, like many of the other sponsors, to withdraw sponsorship from his show. And I got a lot of people firing back, are you serious? And it's like, you know, just screwing around, you know, which you shouldn't screw around. You're like a Dharma teacher. It's like, <laughs> not this Dharma, but I'm bum. But the tweet that I threw out that, um, and I have no idea if I plagiarized it or if it was just one of those authentic moments that happens every once in a while at around 6.04 in the morning. But I, I did mention that um, love is fearless and fear is loveless. 
and in relationship to our experiences as human beings, recognizing that fundamental truth becomes such an amazing guide. That in fear there is not room for love to reveal itself through us when we are afraid. That everything seems to get squished and diminished. And that in love there is a fearlessness. Not just to damn the torpedoes, but a fearlessness as in we kind of know and can kind of dance into a light of truth. And I've kind of, especially the the last week has been kind of tough. Um, uh, I've been kind of having that just kind of resonate. Uh, it's just kind of been there, this idea that love is fearless and fear is loveless. And what is, the, what is truly the most loving thing to do? Because if we get into this idea of what is the most loving thing to do, we will always be engaging the world from a place of generosity. We'll also, by extension, be engaging our own experience from a generous orientation. And sometimes that means leaving. When we feel fragmented, we're oriented in fear. When we feel unity, we are in love. When we feel disconnected, alienated, we're in fear. When we feel connectivity, we are in love. When we're defending or feeling defended, we're in fear. When we can rest as an utterly undefended entity, we're in love. When we're in fear, anger arises. When we're in love, acceptance rules the day and the night. When we're in fear, we compete. And when we're in love, we dance. Shall we dance? <laughs> Questions? Yeah, sure, sure, sure. Fire away, Cindy. How you doing, by the way? Uh, you know, when uh, you're trying to act out of the big self, mm-hmm. so your your big self, your compassion is for your children. Mm-hmm. This is also a case. A toxic environment, 
my other son, mm-hmm. he's married, talks to <coughs> He won't leave because mm-hmm. he met it's a big self. The children, the children, the children. He tells me, well. But hang on. Whatever it is. Yeah. But. Whatever it is. Whatever. Listen. I want to see your eyeballs. Okay. Whatever it is, Cindy. The hardest thing in the world is to watch somebody else go through their karma, isn't it? Your job is to let him go through his karma. And that's the hardest thing. And that's so hard to practice because what we want to do is fix, alter, adjust, maintain, restructure, realign. But you know what we do when we do that? We merely keep them small and ourselves small. Big self, big self comes through us effortlessly. It's not something we, we don't have to work at it. It comes through us effortlessly when we let go and yet totally remain intimate with all that that surrender implies and brings about. We get out of our own way, so to speak, right? And we get out of his. Um, so, yeah, I definitely don't. He's in Virginia. I have nothing to do with his life. But it sounds like you have plenty to do with his but life right now. It's so hard to watch. Well, so that's... Watch. This that, is not like one month, one year. We're talking years. Right. One child is autistic. Mm-hmm. I can't watch it. Right. I just can't watch it. Okay. I'm glad I'm in California, but I, I watch him hurting. He's really, really hurting. And it sounds like you are. Well, yeah, I so, watch him. I so, listen, get eyeballs, <laughs> Cindy, okay? Yeah. All of that stuff is very real. I understand where you're coming from and the pain of, of the tangle. Karma's a bitch. You know, I mean, let's be honest here. But my recommendation is for you to become totally intimate with all these feelings you have, okay? Dance with your feelings, not with his reality, okay? And that doesn't mean I'm glad he's not, uh, not near me because this really, that's awful. Instead, it's like, because that's not, that's not love, that's that as I was describing, it's fear, right? And in love, there's a fearlessness. No matter what he's dealing with, we start to recognize, you know, no matter what he is dealing with, I can deal with him dealing with that as a loving mother. And I'm not going to try to fix it. I'm not because I can't. But what I can do is make myself available to his discomfort. I can make myself utterly available, not to fix it, but I can be available to it. I can be available to the entire world's pain. I don't have to run. I don't have to defend. I don't have to feel fragmented. I can be right here with all of it. And... I'm okay. It doesn't kill me. As a matter of fact, there's something in it that's kind of quiet and powerful. The moon sets midnight going through this marketplace. Hi, honey. Good to hear your voice. Having a hard time? Oh, I'm so sorry. That must be so hard. Yeah. Oop, gotta go.
<laughs> yeah. Follow up on a question and ask you to retreat. Yeah, sure. Um, my question was, um, you know, here at Green Gulch, everything is beautiful and, and uh, kind of protected from the outside, you know, outside world. And I said, what happens when these people, you know, after three months, a year, whatever, go to the real world? And he said, Mark, this is the real world. And out there is a world of consumerism. Oh, you mean, I, I think I remember when we were talking about how the idyllic situation at Green Gulch Farm, yeah. how profoundly gorgeous yeah. it is, yeah. and how easy it would be to do all your work there. Yeah. But then when you come home, and I, my point was that that, too, is a really destructive story. Just like assuming that anybody who sits on the cushion in front of people is somehow special. It's a destructive story. Because what we have at Green Gulch as with every single spiritual community I've ever been either affiliated with or lived in, and there have been several, every single one of them you enter into, oh, well, this would be a great place for me to awaken. And then after about like day seven, you start realizing this is the world. It's a different kind of consumerism, a different kind of attachment. It's a different kind... But it's the same thing, which was part of the reason why Infinite Smile started. Because if it can't come out here, if, if, if the monastic gift can't now be integrated fully into the day-to-day -day world, this next turning of the Dharma wheel won't happen. That's my, that's my belief, and I could be dead wrong. But it seems really logical that with the global mind of the net and everything else kind of starting to just pop, that it makes total sense for us to take the teaching of the ancients and bring it into the world of the contemporary that has all sorts of different ways of creating this beautiful container for the teaching in the world. Okay. You know? I don't know if that helps. No, it did a lot. Yeah, no, that was a good... <clears throat> I was kind of left dangling, confused after Yeah. That. So thanks for... Oh, there's as much uh, as much craziness, you know, there is, uh, you know, out here. And it's still the most gorgeous place on the planet. And I think uh, I should, I would be lucky to be able to spend more time there just as a monk. You know. Yeah. I said, Ms. Ivan, yes. Well, let's hope. <laughs> Don't want any psychosis going on here. You know. um, so, in, with the idea of love and fear, yeah. I've been thinking a lot about your statement of what would you do if, you, if there was nothing to fear. Mm -hmm. um, and what if fear is, is actually helpful in preventing harm? And conversely, love is blind and may lead you to a place that you should fear. <laughs> mm -hmm. How do you respond to that? Well, I would say, first of all, let's go to the second part of the question first. It, it was, you know, fear can actually be, the first part was fear can actually uh, protect us. Yeah. Okay? 
we're wired that way. And the second part was love can be blind and can potentially lead us into really awful places. And I would say that with that definition of love, love is blind, should be rewritten because that kind of love is not typically the big love that I'm talking about. It's actually addiction. And addiction is blind. Okay? The kind of love I'm talking about is blind technically because it has no sight. It has no boundary. It, has, it is open. It is utterly open. And that utter openness never leads us into danger because what we're talking about is not, oh, that looks like a total disaster. I'm open to it. I'll go try it out. That's addiction. That's falling prey to a habitual inertia that we have psychologically or physically, you know, neurochemically. We're jonesing for something, okay? This kind of thing that I'm talking about, this kind of, this kind of love, this kind of bigness, this kind of openness that I'm talking about is a radical acceptance of whatever is coming up, okay? So we have the egoically bound love, which is oftentimes neuro, it's, it's all about neurochemistry. It's all about the Jones. It's all about romance. It's all about how they make me feel. Okay? That's small love, and it's awesome. Right? Okay? But for, yeah, but, but it tends to be short-lived and tends to run a course. Okay? And then we're screwed. Okay? When we still, we just kind of stick it out, right? Big love actually creates a field around small love that is utterly able to detach from the attachments of small love and then provide clarity. So in any situation from big love, we will be looking at the appropriate response, the most generous, the most loving response to whatever shows up, okay? As far as fear, first part of the question, being something that actually can help us, I would say, sure, when you see the Hummer coming at you and you're in the crosswalk, please step out of the way. Fear, the Hummer might run me down, okay? Or to be politically balanced, the smart car might dent your leg. Okay? So, what happens? We then, we then look at the situation and we recognize, we have a discriminating awareness, saber-toothed cat, bad, move, run, spear, whatever. Okay? That fight or flight helps us. The kind of fear I'm talking about is a pervasive future mind. Big fear. The stress affiliated with some future event that has not happened yet, yet that's our fundamental orientation, right? When we are paying attention to what's in the future, yet we are actually living in the now, that tear between now and future is called stress. And it destroys us. Our cortisol levels, back to the neurochemistry, skyrocket. And what happens? We get inflexible. We get old. We start to feel it physically, emotionally. Depression ensues. And so as much as fight or flight can be helpful in an instantaneous moment, okay, fight or flight at great lengths creates 
a, a bodily a chemistry within our bodies that destroys us. It ain't compassion and it ain't wise. Make sense? Yeah. This is kind of bringing it back to when you first started talking about your separation and mm-hmm. judgment. He was also a defensive lineman at Rutgers, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. Okay. Even better. Even better. <laughs> he's, he's hilarious. Yes. Anybody, if, if you've seen Lama Surya Das, he's quite funny. He's this, uh, um, uh, he's a, he's a he, Buju, he's a Jewish, Jewish kid who became this uh, Lama, incredible practitioner, wrote the Awakening the Buddha Within, I think, right? Anyway, sorry. So, Don't be sorry. so okay. <laughs> so four years ago, you are in contact with him. Yeah, at a um, retreat or yeah. yeah. Okay. And uh, someone else was with me. And um, anyway, um, so a llama, he starts talking. He's got a good sense of humor, like yourself. So I'm kind of digging it. And, uh, <laughs> Thank you. Four years ago. So and you're bringing this up. And he's going through his talk, and right in the middle of his talk, he says, yeah, I'm going through divorce, and, you know, it's not going so hot. And I'm like, what? <laughs> what? Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. My head's spinning. And I'm like, he's a llama. He's supposed to be this. He's supposed to be that. And then he, just, he gets this big, big bowl out, and he writes up on how to chant, this one chant. And I'll never forget it. He had, at least me, and all of us, I think, in a lather. And my eye just went right there to the third. And, and then he started just gonging that thing. And I just started letting go. Yeah. And letting go and letting go. And the same thing, the judgment came up briefly. And then I started thinking about that. And then you're talking about, I'm just a dude. <laughs> That's what he was. But he was a... We're all just dudes. Funny dude. Yeah. Yeah, so I'll never thank, forget that. Thank you for saying that. I think it is... It is... Uh, yeah, it's, a, it's an opportunity. That a teacher is our opportunity to see ourselves through another. Right? Hey, yeah, yeah. And that was such a gift. I remember, i never forget when I saw my teacher uh, screw up royally in front of the Sangha, in my view. You know, he's screwing up royally in front of the Sangha. This is during a practice period. And he was just being a knucklehead. You know, refusing to give a Dharma talk as some way of, you know, establishing... You know, really, you know, core teaching and so forth. And I could see it was really putting people in this. And I, and I just, what I did, I thought, I thought about it and going, you know, that isn't any good. He's really screwed. And I went, okay, now I'm harboring ill will. And that's not going to get me anywhere. I better talk to him. So in my dokusan, which I had, you know, several mornings a week, I went in and talked to him about it. And he goes, he goes, all right. So now we can start, you know. <laughs> but it took... You know, I finally got pissed. I finally saw him as somebody real. And it was really, it was, and, and, you know, it was one of those moments where everything kind of deepened. So, anyway. Yeah, real quick. Well, Well, I I just, I wanted to give you guys time to do that embarrassing handshaking thing. (laughs) I do want to thank you for opening up the forum to be able to talk about it. You're welcome. 
Yeah. <laughs> it. <laughs> the thing. <laughs> so I'm going to call up with you later because, yeah, I, you, you know, I've struggled with it. And, uh, <laughs> and it's good to get it out. And I, it's yeah. really been bothering me. Yeah. Well, then that's your, whatever is bothering you is the source of your next, that's the source of your uh, next level of work. And that goes for everybody in this room. Whatever is bugging you is precisely where you need to go. Right? Well, I I appreciate you saying that. And I mostly wanted to see something. You said, you told your story, Philip, and that's neat. And I wish Mm -hmm. I could have that, you know, take the judgment away. But that's right where I am right now. And I'm just being honest in case it helps somebody else. Mm -hmm. And because you... don't, Don't care about anybody else. Where are you? This is bugging you. It's bugging you, and it's been bugging you for a long time, and we've talked about it a great deal. It's still bugging you. What are you going to do about it? Talk to you. Excellent. Okay? Now, we can keep talking about it, but it's really a point of practice for you, you know? I'm going to still give you the same answers, pretty much, and you know that, but it's like this, it's a sticking point. And absolutely, I'm totally happy to sit there and try to help you unpack that. But really, this is your work. And it's a gift. You're being asked. You're being asked to deepen your life experience. Right? And every time you keep fighting, either me or my situation or somebody else or their situation, every time you keep fighting, what do you do? You close that curtain. Instead of opening the curtain, and better yet, even opening the window to the sunshine that's waiting to come in. I feel a little closing going on. Thank you.